This is episode 32 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, September 25th, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And we have, uh, so I got back from LinuxCon a long time ago. And this is really exciting for me because now I'm one of those people who can attend conferences right now. Because of the new baby? The new baby that doesn't exist yet. Well, but it in, will. But by this time, it yeah, surely will. Yeah, we're in the past. Will. Yeah, very strange. Although anything can happen, you know? But, well, I'm sure <laughs> it will be fine. And so by the time you hear that, we're actually recording uh, somewhat in advance uh, to give Karen uh, as uh, some extra time in her new motherhood that will be going on as you hear this. But um, but what's exciting about this is that I was really sad to miss LinuxCon, and now um, I was just able to listen to Matthew Garrett's talk. So. Yeah, and uh, I I got uh, a few talk recordings. Uh, I didn't go to actually that many talks, so I recorded almost all the talks I went to, which wasn't very many. Uh, a few people I went Usually to talks. Usually, you don't admit that you don't attend the talks, even. Well, there, there was actually the, the, this was actually a weird thing at LinuxCon. So the real conference was downstairs. It was really funny. So there were three simultaneous conferences going on. There was LinuxCon. There was Linux cloud something cloud something cloud 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 something <laughs> stack cloud something cloud stack with OpenStack included something. Okay. I don't know. Did that have something I, I to do with the cloud? Yeah, it was something cloud. Yeah. Um, actually announced during the conference was somebody did a survey that found that 51% of people uh, thought that the weather would affect their cloud services. Really? Yeah, I, I haven't found. I haven't found a. This was just people were talking about it around the conference. That's great. Yeah, so it's it's raining. Your, your cloud services don't work as well, uh, which is kind of true if you get them over a satellite link. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a satellite television, and this te- when it rains really hard, the satellite television does go out. That's really funny. So my cloud services do go out. You could also <laughs> so one of my cloud services. You could also have power failure, which would affect your ability to access any. That's true. Data. There you go. Hurricanes get off and knock out power. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so, but then the real conference, the third conference, was Linux plumbers, and that was downstairs. And so I kept going downstairs to the real conference, even so, though I wasn't at the real conference. <laughs> wait. So okay. So yeah, Linux Plumbers was the real conference. Was the, that was why do you call it the real conference? Because it was it was the one that wasn't bunch of management and marketing directors people. Like that was mostly most of LinuxCon and certainly the cloud stack cloud cloud. But that's cloud. always that's always true of of LinuxCon. But not of Linux Plumbers. Okay. Linux no, Plumbers no. was all hardcore. Although it doesn't normally hackers. overlap as completely, right? No, I thought in the past it's like they've been back to back. That's correct. It, plumbers was usually right before LinuxCon. Now Plumbers is just downstairs. You just sort of oh, I sneak see. Downstairs. That's convenient. It's very convenient. Although there was a lot of confusion because uh, there was actually no real checking of badges, but people who wanted to be careful and were trying to do the right thing as far as what they had paid for, um, they. Uh, they they asked and were told they couldn't go to plumbers and oh, they no. were upset. But it, the thing was is that you could you could just sneak in. That was the thing is that you just would go downstairs and nobody was. They didn't have. It wasn't like Oscom where there's people checking badges at right. doors. Well, actually, that's not true. There wasn't people checking badges that hard at doors at plumbers, but there was at LinuxCon, ironically, and plumbers was the one that people who didn't sign up for really wanted to go to. Well, did it not go both ways at all? No, it was you needed the little labels on the attached to your badges to get into the various ones. Oh, okay. Um, and in fact, they were aggressively scanning people. Um, they were not only checking badges, but they were scanning barcodes to see who went to what talks. And I kept refusing to have my badge scanned. I kept oh, no, saying, I, "Is it mandatory?" I, I actually mean, weren't there people who were only coming to plumbers that wanted to come to Linux? A few things in LinuxCon. Um, I think that pretty much everyone who went to plumbers didn't really care about LinuxCon unless they were speaking at it. Oh, uh, okay. They just stayed downstairs because that was all the really interesting technical talks were all downstairs. Oh, okay. There was upstairs was a bunch of business marketing talks like mine. I mean, not that I'm like, so, I'm just insulting myself here because I was on the Linux wait, contract. Wait, so why didn't you record any of the Linux plumbers? Um, because I didn't go to very many talks. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I most I kept going to Linux plumbers to talk to people in the hallway. Down oh, oh, you Linux went plumbers. for the plumbers hallway track, which you probably would have been able to have done without. I mean, yeah, that's well, that's not really uh, sneaking yeah. in. Well, it was a little bit because there was specific. The, the main issue, the only thing that they were being strict about was the plumbers had food sponsored for all oh. for everything, so you couldn't get the plumbers food. 
I understand. But you could get, but I didn't want the Palmer's food anyway, because the food at the venue was a, the venue was really horrible, and I think everybody Where agreed. was it? It was at the Sheraton uh, Marina San Diego, which Oscon used to be at for two years. Right. Oscon spent two years there, so I knew the venue and knew it was horrible. And as Fontana said, he has issues with venues that are near airports, which actually don't bother me at all. I actually prefer the venue to be near an airport, because it's not like you get to leave the venue anyway, hardly. The only oh. issue is the restaurants. Well, I was going to say, that makes a big difference. Like, if you can have meetings over good meals, yeah, that's better. Well, and it's it was the typical Linux, con- or I'm sorry, Linux Foundation conference setup where they bus you off to the events, so you ride the tw- the 30-minute the, the bus ride to the events right. and so forth, which which I, I think I think that's what Fontana's getting at when he's saying he doesn't like them, because it's that's that whole... And you spend a lot of time on the bus. Yeah, yeah. But and then it depends who you sat next to for that ride. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Fontana and I hung out a lot, so we talked That's during cool. those rides. And I talked to, I had a good, really good conversation with Jim Geddes about, uh, his, the project he's working on on mm. one of the bus rides. He's, he's basically, he's written about a lot about this buffer bloat issue. And he's also mm-hmm. working to, basically, he, he really wants to make, help, or help these various communities that make software for wireless routers because the wireless router is the device that people use to connect to the internet. And he wants to make them better and wants to make them actually right. not have buffer bloat, for example, and other things as well. So we had a very long talk about it his project uh which we finished the next day because it was a long talk but it was very good so yeah the buses were not that bad from my point of view that's cool but well should we get to the talk that we have so what we, we have is uh, discuss it a little bit after so we have a talk by matthew garrett uh which is regarding uh, uefi and secure boot which we covered uh, in a previous episode but we were talking primarily about uh, fsf statement uh, and if folks want to go back and listen to that if folks want to go back and listen to that um, that was on uh, a previous episode, and I'm looking up the episode number now, and I'm using all of my bandwidth for something else. Well, so- I was laughing because you always, Bradley always criticizes me for turning away or doing funny audio things, and you were just doing that. I was indeed, but now it should be fine. And the episode you want to listen to is 2Delta, which was F- entitled FSF's Restricted Boot Paper, which talked about both the Fedora and the Ubuntu policies. Uh, and Matthew's talking more about some, basically, actually, you might want to listen to them. And <laughs> you might want to listen to this first if you haven't listened to 2Delta yet, because, uh, in fact, this would be good context uh, for yeah, that. Yeah, so. that was back in July. I think that this, you know, I've, I've I, I think this, the talk that Matthew gives is a good overview. So I, th- I think that's a much, I think that's a better introduction than right. what we gave. <laughs> so if you're, yeah, in, in fact, yeah, if you're a completely new listener and you're listening to things sort of in reverse order, uh, this is a good intro for episode two Delta in the past. So uh, with that, uh, let's listen to Matthew Garrett's talk about UEFI from LinuxCon 2012 in San Diego. Uh, Bradley, before we start it, we should tell people that they can get the slides um, and from the show notes. Yeah, I'll link to uh, Matthew's slides in the show notes, but you did listen to it without the I slides. did, and there's one point where, which we'll, we'll probably just talk about later, um, where it would be helpful to have the slides. But, but mostly generally, to get you a can, joke. Yeah, exactly. You, <laughs> so can, I, you, you can, can follow along without the so slides. So those of you listening while riding bikes and walking and other such uh, things can just listen on, and you can probably get a lot of it without the slides. My name is Matthew Garrett. I'm currently working at Red Hat. I have, for the past year or so, been primarily working on UEFI support and especially support for the UEFI Secure Boot Protocol. I'm going to give a brief introduction to UEFI for those of you who still haven't managed to be uh, repeatedly told what it is and how it's going to make everything awful for some of you. And then I'm going to talk specifically about Secure Boot, about what it is, the problems it poses, uh, the solutions that we are looking at for handling it, and finally, the kind of open remaining issues, uh, the problems that we still have to solve. What is UEFI? You turn on your computer, and then something happens, and then an operating system boots. UEFI is that something. At the most basic level, it's a replacement for the legacy PC BIOS that's been with us since the early 80s. It's a large body of primarily open code, which is then built on top of a closed platform-specific initialization layer. You turn the machine on, it runs this closed code that's responsible for doing things like running, uh, like setting up your memory controller that's responsible for powering up various bits of hardware so that they can actually be spoken to by the CPU. And then we migrate to the UEFI core code, um, 
um, like I said, there's a while there is a completely open implementation of this on Tiano Core SourceForge.com, there is not necessarily a completely open implementation of what your machine is running. Uh, vendors can take the open UEFI codes, they can make their own modifications. It's under a BSD style license, so there aren't no obligations to give you those modifications. But one significant advantage it does have over BIOS is that it is a cross-vendor industry standard. Rather than the way things were in the BIOS days, where if you wanted to implement any kind of new functionality in BIOS, you either had to pretend that it was actually part of some other standard, so things like LBA, the ability for BIOS to read disks that were bigger than, I don't know, 13 kilobytes. That kind of thing was standardized through storage specification bodies rather than any kind of BIOS body. In UEFI, there's a standards working group. We have weekly phone meetings, and there are regular in-person meetings where we can discuss what additional functionality we want in UEFI, what the best way of implementing this is, and how we can make sure that it satisfies the needs of the firmware vendors, the hardware vendors, and the operating system vendors. In terms of collaboration, UEFI is a great step forward. Now, the biggest differences at a technical level between UEFI and BIOS, other than the fact that it is completely different in pretty much every single way, the relevant differences that you're likely to see are that the firmware can read file systems. Um, BIOS can't typically do this. The only thing that BIOS can do is jump to a, it can read a block off the disk and then jump to it. And then that code has to have enough codes to then load something that can read file systems. In principle, UEFI can read any file system. You can load file system drives at runtime. In practice, the specification only requires that firmware implement VFAT support, and therefore the only file system that you're guaranteed the ability to access is VFAT. Bootloaders are executables. They're actual well-formed binary objects that you can compile with a C compiler and then put through object dump. You can modify them as you want. You can run them under a debugger. It's kind of like the future. As opposed to the old BIOS days where a bootloader is just a bunch of code that is written directly onto your disk somewhere. And finally, there's a chunk of non-volatile storage available to you. And that non-volatile storage is used for a range of things. The primary one is that it contains the set of installed bootloaders and also the priority listing for those. You can install a bootloader. You can install an operating system. Your operating system can install a bootloader, and then you have a pointer to that bootloader, and so the firmware knows to run that bootloader. If instead you want to run another operating system, it could also install itself, install its bootloader, and add its bootloader to that list of bootloaders. And then there will be some sort of firmware UI to choose between them. More usefully, though, you can install a bootloader, and then you can also install a secondary bootloader. And you can set the boot priority list such that if the first bootloader fails to execute, the system will automatically fall back to the second bootloader. So you might have a system that is configured to try booting off hard drive. And if booting off hard drive fails, try booting off a recovery partition. And if booting off the recovery partition fails, try to boot off the network so that you can download a new installation image and re-image the hard drive. You can also say, I want to do a one-off boot. So boot this binary at the next reboot, but after that, go back to booting the normal bootloader. Still, that's kind of a brief overview of UEFI. It's, uh, it's a significant code base. We continue to find new and exciting bugs in various UEFI implementations. It's still much less well-tested and understood than BIOS, but overall, we're getting the hang of it. We're now fairly reliably able to boot UEFI systems. Which brings us on to where I'm going to start talking about secure boot. Now, you turn your computer on, and this happens. The firmware runs, and then the firmware executes a bootloader, and then the bootloader executes your operating system. And your operating system these days is probably able to validate its own security. Windows 8 actually goes so far as to load and initialize anti-malware software before it's even completely loaded the set of drivers, which means they can verify that everything that then runs is not malware. 
If we assume the operating system itself is able to look after its own security, does that mean that we're now in a good position where the operating system can guarantee that it's been unmodified and trusted? And the answer is no, we can't. If we insert a piece of malware here, if we tell the firmware to load our malware instead of telling the firmware to load the bootloader, then the malware can itself load the bootloader, and the bootloader can then be modified, and the modified bootloader can then load the operating system and modify the operating system. And the operating system cannot verify that this has not happened. If the operating system wanted to check the boot sector, say, it would read the boot sector, okay? Except the malware has modified the kernel so that if you try to read the boot sector, it gives you back a valid boot sector. There's no way that you can verify that your system has not been compromised. Actually, that's not true. You can with the TPM, but most systems don't have TPMs. If you execute untrusted code at any layer, every single layer above that can no longer be trusted. There is no way for you to verify that trust unless you have hardware level measurement. And you might think that this is a kind of uninteresting threat, but this is actually how viruses started. Uh, traditional viruses would just drop themselves into the boot block of a drive. The oldest PC viruses wrote themselves into the boot sector. And part of that was because you were running DOS. There wasn't really an operating system as such. There was just a flashing cursor, and it went beep occasionally. <laughs> but as computers got more advanced, the urge to attack the operating system increased, and so people tend to focus on the operating system itself. Uh, you could modify the operating system files rather than modifying the boot sector. But this is getting... People are now moving back towards the old way of doing things. And we are seeing an increasing number of attacks that are based on modifying the boot process. And most, the most terrifying one is a virus that is able to reflash the BIOS on about 30% of PC motherboards. It inserts itself into your BIOS. The BIOS then reads the boot sector. If the boot sector is not infected, it infects the boot sector. So, and then the boot sector covers itself up. So you think, okay, I'm worried that this machine might be infected. I'm going to verify because it hasn't been by taking the hard drive out, putting the hard drive in another machine, and then checking the boot sector. And you discover, oh, wow, this hard drive is infected. I'll fix that. And then you put the hard drive back in your original machine, you turn the machine on, and it immediately reinfects itself. It's pretty scary. This is a real thing. And when Windows 8 starts being even stricter about uh, avoiding operating system level attacks, it's going to become even more common. All the tools to do this are already out there in the wild. Malware authors are already putting them together. So in order to deal with this, we can't just trust the operating system. We need to start looking earlier in the boot chain. And UEFI Secure Boot is an attempt to solve this problem. Uh, the most basic technical level, it just adds a header section to each binary, and then that's a pointer to a certificate. You hash the binary, and you generate a cryptographic hash. It's typically a SHA-256. And then you sign that hash with an RSA 2048-bit key. And you insert that signed hash into the binary. When the firmware wants to execute the binary, it reads the binary, it calculates the hash itself, and then it checks whether the calculated hash matches the signed hash. And first of all, that tells you whether the binary has been modified. If the binary is modified, the hashes will no longer match. But you also verify that the hash was signed with a key you trust, and that means that this binary was generated by someone you trust and has not been modified by anybody else. We've now verified that this binary is unmodified and generated by someone you trust. So a malware author is presumably not someone you trust, and a modified binary may have been modified by someone you don't trust. So it refuses to load those. And there's, per specification, uh, it's permissible for the system to do various things when it runs a binary that doesn't match. It can just refuse to run it. It can pop up a prompt asking the user if they really want to run it despite it not matching. It could run it if it wants to. But practically speaking, all implementations we've seen so far uh, just refuse to run the binary.
So that's a technical overview of what Secure Boot is, but there's a couple of things it's not. And these are things that, without understanding these things it's not, you can come up with a flawed understanding of how useful Secure Boot is. The first thing is that it's not a DRM mechanism. And you might argue, well, okay, this is a mechanism for ensuring that you've booted a trusted chain up until your operating system. Therefore, you could use this to say, ah, well, everything's trusted. Therefore, I can use my DRM-protected media decoder while knowing that nobody can intercept the decoded content. Except you can't do that. There's no attestation in Secure Boot. The only way an operating system knows that it was booted securely is that it asks the firmware, did I boot securely? And if you've run untrusted code before that, that untrusted code can change the function pointer to the call that says, did I boot securely? And repoint it to something that says, yes. Since the operating system has no way of verifying that it was booted securely, it's not DRM. You can't use this as an effective DRM mechanism. Nor is it intended to protect against physically present attackers. There are various attacks you can still make on EFI platforms with Secure Boot if you can gain physical access to the system. And obviously, at the most basic level, you can take the machine apart and you can reflash the firmware directly. The firmware is just an SPI flash part. You can attach a programmer, you can reprogram it, and you can disable Secure Boot, or you could insert your own key into the database. Uh, even if you couldn't do that, the one thing that you would use Secure Boot for is ensuring that the system isn't running a keylogger, for instance. If someone's got physical access, they can install a hardware keylogger. So it's not intended to protect against that. And that's, again, important because when defining security models around Secure Boot, you can assume that anyone with physical access is trusted to modify the trust status of the system. There's actually a fairly detailed key management setup as part of the UEFI specification. There's four key databases. And the first of these is called DBX and is a blacklist. If you insert a SHA-256 hash in there, or if you insert a certificate key in there, then anything that either matches that hash or which was signed with that key will not run. And the idea here is that if someone generates a signed image with a trusted key, and then at some later point, it's discovered that either that was malware, or the control of the key was lost, or the binary is exploitable in some way and could be used to attack systems, even if it's not intrinsically malware, then an update can be pushed out at runtime uh, through, say, Windows Update or your Linux distributions update system. And DBX can be updated, and that binary will no longer run on your system. DBX entries are final. There's no straightforward way to remove DBX entries there's no way to override DBX. If you have a binary that's been blacklisted, the only way to get it running again is to sign it with a different key or to generate the modify the binary so it's got a different hash and then again, re-sign it. DB contains keys and hashes that will be accepted. So anything that has a hash that's in DB but not in DBX or anything that's signed with a key that is in DB but not in DBX will run. In order to run a binary, it must either hash to a value in DB or be signed by a key that's in DB and not hash to a value that's in DBX or be signed by a key that's in DBX. And if those conditions are met, the binary will run. So how do we update DB and DBX? And the problem there is, well, you can't say anyone can update DB and DBX because then the first thing an attacker does is just update DB. Now they've installed a key, then they can run their signed binary in the firmware. More to the point, you don't want it to be trivial to update DBX because otherwise an attacker just inserts the hash of your bootloader into DBX and suddenly your machine stops booting, which is unfortunate. In order to update DB or DBX, those updates themselves have to be signed and they can be signed by a key that's in KEK. KEK stands for Key Exchange Key. The idea here is that the platform vendor and the operating system vendor can have their keys there when you boot the system any update signed by them can be used to insert new entries into DB or DBX. So uh, say the signing key that was used to sign the bootloader has to be revoked. You would update the bootloader, you would put a new key in DB, and you would put the old key in DBX. It's a straightforward handover. And PK contains 
the platform key, this is the key at the top level of the trust hierarchy. If you have PK, then you can update KEK. In a typical environment, PK will be owned by the hardware vendor. So if it's an HP, then HP would have the private half of PK. If it's a Dell, Dell would have the private half of PK. What kind of policy gets built on top of this? The UEFI specification itself does not define any policy for secure boot. It merely defines a set of tools that you can put together and then build your own policy on top of Like I mentioned, as far as UEFI policy goes, it's perfectly valid to execute an unsigned binary or an incorrectly signed binary or an untrusted binary. But most implementations won't do this. Um, Microsoft impose a specific policy as part of the Windows 8 hardware certification requirements. Uh, the idea there is you, if you're a hardware manufacturer, you make sure that your system meets the certification requirements, and then you get permission to use one of those little Windows stickers on your laptop. And it turns out that the reason for those stickers is not because when a consumer goes out to buy a system, they're looking for one with a little Windows sticker. Generally speaking, they expect that the system will run Windows. The reason you have that little Windows sticker is that that means you're then part of the Windows logo program, and Microsoft supports your marketing efforts, that kind of thing. And one, when we're down in the consumer PC range, we're talking about profit margin on systems being in the pennies kind of range. The Windows logo program can make the difference between you making a profit when selling a system and you not making a profit, or you having to raise the price enough to make a profit that you're just undercut by your competition. So there's a strong incentive for the vendors to do this. And machines that are certified under the Microsoft program must have the Microsoft signing keys. There's a Microsoft DB entry, and there's a Microsoft KEK entry, which means that stuff signed by Microsoft will run, and Microsoft can update DB and DBX. The machines must default to secure boot being enabled. If you buy a Windows 8 certified system, when you turn this on, secure boot must be enabled, and it must not execute anything that isn't signed by a trusted key. The question is, does Microsoft preclude you from including other keys? And no, you can have as many other keys as you want. Microsoft, the only keys that Microsoft say must not be included are the old Microsoft test keys. <clears throat> so Microsoft handed out a bunch of secure boot tablets at the build conference last year. Uh, and you could run the Windows 8 developer previews on those. They were signed with the same keys. Microsoft then revoked those keys, and Windows 8 consumer release is signed with a different set of keys. And so, as a result, doesn't boot on the test tablets. And then people started complaining about this. What do you think was going to happen? <laughs> uh, then the final point here was not present in the original uh, draft of these requirements that was published back in 2011. It was then updated after a certain amount of media outcry, and it's now a requirement that the physically present end user be able to disable secure boot entirely, but also for the physically present end user to be able to enroll their own keys if they wish. That's a question at the back. How large is a key? Uh, so an RSA 2048-bit key is 2048 bits. <laughs> but then there's a header on there. You're looking at uh, it's... A key is, I think, in the two to four kilobyte range, depending on how much additional metadata there is. Uh, and then you're required to have at least 64K of storage available for this platform vendor, because add more if they want to install more keys. Right, so how difficult is it to enroll your own key? And the answer there is that the specification, that, sorry, the requirements do not say what the UI for this must be, nor do they say what file format the key must be in. This does make things a little trickier. There are ways of handling this in a much nicer manner, and I'm going to get onto that in a few minutes. But anyway, the idea is that 
it may not be straightforward, but the physically present end user should be able to completely replace the set of keys that are trusted. If you want, you can remove every single publicly available key. You can enroll your own key. You can sign all the software you want to run, and your machine will not run. You can make you can set it up such that your machine will not run Windows, will not run Debian, will not run Ubuntu, will not run Fedora, will only run uh, Arch or something, if you really want to do that. I've no idea why anyone wants to do that, especially Arch, but really that's just my personal taste rather than being seen as a direct criticism. So, the obvious thing here is, uh, well, okay, how do you boot anything that isn't Windows then if the only key that is required to be included is a Microsoft signing key. Microsoft actually provides a signing service. If you sign up for the Windows hardware qualification program, which you need to do if you want to distribute signed Windows drivers, uh, you do this by calling up VeriSign, giving them $99, and then they call up your company's registered phone number and ask if you work there, pretty much. This is apparently what extended validation means. <clears throat> but then they've got a copy of your ID, they've got a copy of your credit cards, presumably. Microsoft kind of know where you live at this point. And then you upload binaries to a signing server, and within a day or so, Microsoft sends you back a signed one. But what do we sign? Um, the approach we came up with in Fedora is to uh, use something called, that we're calling shim. It's an intermediate loader. It's not a particularly featureful bootloader. The only thing it's intended to do is load another bootloader. And you might ask, well, why do you want a bootloader that loads a bootloader? The reason for that is that, like I said, in order to sign something with the Microsoft signing service, you have to upload it through a website, and then you wait a day or so, and then you get a copy sent back to you by email. This is not a very convenient thing to integrate into your package build process. Okay, I'm going to build a package in my distribution build network, and now someone needs to write a script that uploads it to a website and then waits for an email and then publishes that email and drops the binary ask it. Yeah, that's it's not convenient. So we can do this on an infrequent basis, but it's inconvenient to have to repeatedly get new bootloader signed. And we update the bootloader reasonably regularly. We also upload new kernels on a very regular basis, oh, sorry, a very frequent basis. I won't necessarily say regular. And again, we don't want to have to upload every single kernel we produce to Microsoft. That would be very convenient. So instead, we have this intermediate loader that loads binaries and then validates them against not only the system's built-in key database, but also a key database that's built into the shim loader. So we take uh, this shim, we embed within it our public key, and then we sign the full bootloader and the kernel with our private key instead of the Microsoft key. Shim loads the bootloader, ensures that it's signed with our key, and then executes it. And then the bootloader actually calls back into Shim to verify that the kernel it's trying to load is signed with our private key. But it will also fall back to using any keys that have been enrolled in the system key databases. So if you've enrolled your own key, it will use that as well. It doesn't mean that you're forced to use our keys. <coughs> a kind of alternative approach to this uh, was developed by James Bossomley. Uh, it's a signed bootloader that will load unsigned code. And you might think, well, okay, this sounds pretty dangerous, but it will only load unsigned code if the physically present end user confirms that they want to launch this unsigned code. And like I said, the physically present end user is already trusted to modify the trust status of the machine. And that'd be really kind of inconvenient because every time you boot it, you would need to press yes or type, I confirm that I wish to boot this system or something like that. But if you can switch the system back into setup mode, and setup mode is what the UFI specification calls the state where there are no keys installed, then in setup mode, it can install signing keys itself. So if you have a system that is, so you go into your firmware, you delete the existing keys, the system sends setup mode, and then this time when you boot, rather than just saying, do you want to install, do you want to boot this 
untrusted operating system, it says, do you want to enroll the keys required to boot this operating system? You can then enroll those keys, and from that point on, it will run those signed binaries. And the code is available at this fairly ugly URL. Oh, hey. Um, it would be differently ugly. Right. Yeah, you, you shouldn't type in HTTP twice. Is this the same disabling secure boot? No, not really, uh, because disabling secure boot involves you going into the menu, your firmware menus, and then finding the option that might be called disable secure boot, or which might be called enable untrusted software, or which might be called yellow. It's potentially, if, if you enroll the key, then you've already gone through the firmware menu and stuff, and so you've demonstrated that you're trusted because you've just deleted all your keys, and so presumably you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, you probably shouldn't delete all your keys. Uh, we go from there, either of those, we then go to a full bootloader. Um, there's two that are currently being looked at for this. There's Grub2. Grub2 is under the GPLv3. The GPLv3 has requirements that it be possible to, for the end user to replace GPLv3 components with other GPLv3, with modified copies of that component. And if it's signed, then the obvious thing is, well, okay, since you can't replace it with an unsigned copy, you need the signing keys. We're happy that if you're able to replace the I'm not a lawyer, do not take this as legal advice. If you are concerned about this, speak to a lawyer, etc. We're fairly happy that uh, if the user is able to install their own keys, then they can replace the copy of Grub that we signed with a copy of Grub that they've signed, and therefore there's no requirement for us to distribute the keys. And we spent some time working with the Free Software Foundation to make sure that we weren't going to hold a position that they disagreed with, and they appear to believe that we're complying with the license. So that's good. We were worried for a while, but now everything seems to be okay, which is nice because maintaining legacy grub for the next forever was really not an appealing prospect. Grub2, it's a large code base. It's got a lot of functionality. It does a lot of things. It supports booting multiple platforms. It has support for BIOS booting. It has support for open firmware booting. It has support for EFI booting. You can run it on Spark, you can run it on PowerPC, you can run it on x86. There's a fair amount of code base there, and if you're worried about making sure that your bootloader is secure, that means there's a fair amount of code to audit. But it's also got a lot of functionality. It's able to load your kernel off an encrypted LVM partition, for instance. Uh, so there are things that Grub can do that people want their bootloaders to do. The main alternative is EFI Linux, which is a small code base, much easier to audit. It's nice, clean code. It does one thing, and it does it correctly. Uh, main problem there is that it's got less functionality. At the moment, for instance, it's only able to use EFI firmware at file system calls. It doesn't have its own file system code. And as a result, it can only boot the kernel off fat partitions, which is limiting in some situations. Uh, but it's not necessarily something that is a critical issue. Now, back when I did the original slide of the malware launcher, we were talking about UEFI Secure Boot as being something that ensures that your bootloader is secure. If your bootloader is secure, then presumably your bootloader can then choose to do whatever it wants. Um, it could load a signed kernel, or it could just default to allowing you to launch anything. This is the main thing where Linux distributions are currently holding different viewpoints. Uh, in Fedora, we are looking at using a signed kernel. Uh, Ubuntu is currently planning on permitting the launching of unsigned kernels. I think SUSE are looking more at the Fedora kind of approach, but you should ask them rather than just assume that I'm right. I am right. Brilliant. But why would we want a signed kernel? Like I said, the uh, secure boot is something that is run in the firmware. Once we've launched the kernel, we're not in the firmware anymore. So why are we concerned about this? And the answer is that, well, OK, you've boosted your operating system and you trust your operating system. Well, if you've launched 
an unsigned kernel, then your operating system isn't trusted. Or if you permit loading unsigned code into the kernel, then again, effectively your kernel isn't trusted. And you could install some code in that kernel that is then able to... In Linux, we have this technology called kexec, where you take your running kernel, you give it another kernel, and then it starts running the new kernel. It's effectively like rebooting, except you skip the reboot. There's no technical reason why kexec has to launch another copy of Linux. It would not be too difficult to write a version of kexec that instead launched Windows. And so now your attacker, if they want to attack Windows, takes your signed Linux bootloader that launches an unsigned Linux kernel and then uses that unsigned Linux kernel to launch a backdoored Windows kernel. And because people have been working really hard on making Linux boot really fast, this would take maybe, uh, this might add, say, half a second to your entire boot time, which users wouldn't notice. So suddenly you've launched your unsigned kernel and now, bam, Windows has been compromised. This isn't an attack that's out in the wilds. Nobody's currently doing this. This isn't necessarily even going to be the easiest way for people to attack Windows. But we wanted to ensure that this was not something that could be done on our systems. Uh, the main reason is that if your bootloader allows you to attack Windows, then if someone uses it to attack Windows, the agreement with Microsoft you signed that says that Microsoft would sign your binary also says that Microsoft can revoke your binary and suddenly your operating system stops booting. We like people being able to boot our operating system. As a company that sells operating systems, we really appreciate customers being able to use the thing we sell them. If they're not able to, they tend to start asking for their money back, which is not necessarily compatible with continuing to be a viable business entity. We're making some modifications uh, to protect this. The first is obviously that we require signed modules, because if you can load an unsigned module into the kernel, that's basically the same as launching an unsigned kernel in the first place. We also need to restrict direct hardware access. Uh, for instance, right now, if you're root, the kernel allows you to access register ranges on your graphics card directly. Your graphics card has a DMA engine. Your graphics card is capable of modifying the kernel. So, we don't want user space to be able to do that directly. Instead, the kernel has to sit there as a mediating layer and validates that what you're doing isn't about to compromise the security of the kernel. Same with IO port access, um, direct access to system memory. Lockdown kexec because otherwise, uh, if you could kexec an unsigned kernel, we're back to where we started this conversation. We have been working very, very hard on making sure that our version of Linux does less than competing versions of Linux. We think this is probably worth it. Uh, we'll see whether everyone agrees. Then going back to your question earlier about how easy it's going to be to enroll keys, like I said, the issue there is that the firmware does not necessarily present a consistent UI. Different vendors will have different language. They'll have different keys to get into the firmware. It's difficult to write good documentation for this. It's not even necessarily consistent within products from a single vendor. One range of HP's laptops expects that any keys you want to enroll will be in a binary uh, DER encoded file, which is actually fairly easy. Another range expects it to be the same content, but wrapped in what looks like an EFI variable update. Uh, we don't know what all these vendors are going to do. It's not easy to say, well, okay, try loading this key. And if loading that key doesn't work, try loading this key, especially because in some cases, it doesn't matter what you give it, it'll put that in the key database and then just ignore it if it's not well-formed. There was a desire to come up with a solution that provides a consistency here, and SUSE developed an approach that provides that. EFI variables, the things that are stored in the non-volatile flash, come in two main types. There's runtime variables and there's boot time variables. Runtime variables are also boot time variables. They can be accessed by the boot code, but also by the running operating system. Boot time variables can only be accessed by the boot environment. And since the boot environment is the only thing is only running trusted code, 
you can install new keys within the boot environments to a variable that can then not be modified by the operating system. The operating system not necessarily being trusted code. And the idea here is that the shimloader or equivalent is able to provide UI for enrolling keys into a boot variable and will then trust any keys that are in that boot variable. And because we control the shimloader, we then control the UI. And there's further details on this at this URL, which only contains HTTP once. <laughs> and we can use this to deal with what was the largest open question, which is, uh, okay, so you require signed modules. How do you deal with third-party modules? There, were there was a bunch of stuff we did not want to do to deal with third-party modules. And the first of those was we did not want to be in the business of signing third-party modules. And secondly, nor did we want to be in the business of handing out keys to people so that they could build third-party modules that would then be trusted by our operating system. That was effectively the us being a CA. Like VeriSign, it's kind of expensive to be a good CA. And if you get it wrong, there are typically significant financial uh, bad things that happen to you. Now the Hand wavy. This is not yet implemented, but the hand wavy plan here is that if you build, if you distribute a third party module, or if the end user builds a third party module, you then sign that with a key and you run a command that copies that, the public half of that key into a variable. And then you reboot the system and the shimloader detects that a variable was put there and drops into enrollment mode. And the user then goes and explicitly enrolls that key. And this wouldn't be a, there's a new key here, do you want to enroll it? Yes, no, this would have to be a, it would drop you to a menu, you choose enroll key, you choose the key you want to enroll, that kind of thing. Then you boot the kernel. The kernel imports the set of trusted keys into the module signing key ring. And because the module you built is signed with a key that's now in the kernel key ring, you can load the module. Problems with that, it, it involves manual intervention. This can't be an automated system because otherwise you could circumvent the trust model by just installing a new key, rebooting the system. So it's a little hard to deploy, especially if you're deploying, say, 20,000 machines. Don't have a great answer for that yet. And this is really the single biggest open issue that we still have with our secure boot plan. So take home message. Uh, we have a plan that will permit you to continue to boot Linux on systems even when they're sold with secure boot enabled by default. Uh, Windows 8 will be released on October 26th, and then most hardware sold after that will be Windows 8 logoed, and so we'll in have secure boot policy like I described before. It's not the kind of doomsday scenario we were potentially looking at a year ago, but there are still open issues that we haven't solved entirely. The third party modules one is the biggest. So we have time for maybe a couple of quick questions. Is there any news about the uh, requirements at uh, ARM? Okay, uh, when I said x86 systems have to permit you to disable secure boot, ARM systems are required to enable secure boot and must not permit the user to disable it and must not permit the user to enroll new keys. When we say ARM, that's only ARM devices with the Windows logo. Uh, that's only going to be Windows RT devices. If you buy an Android device, for instance, it doesn't have to behave this way. This isn't necessarily different to what we've seen in the ARM industry in general. The, a lot of ARM devices sold are already locked down at least this hard, if not even more so. Any word on this from potential ARM we are not currently expecting ARM server vendors to implement this policy. Also right, now, no right. Uh, all of this secure boot stuff is only required on client systems, not on server systems currently. We expect that it will eventually be required on x86 servers, but Microsoft don't currently have a certification plan for ARM servers, nor have they said that they're going to be releasing an ARM server version of Windows. Right. Uh, if you want to build your own shimloader, then you have to pay VeriSign. We, the community, have to do it, yeah. And the idea is that here, uh, someone can then build a copy of the shimloader that lets you, the end user can then enroll their own keys. So if you're a distribution that doesn't want to pay anyone, you can take an existing signed copy of shim, and then the user can enroll keys. 
the money goes to VeriSign. Uh, Microsoft actually uh, subsidized, that's the word, yes. Uh, the normal cost of getting this kind of key is actually something like $500. Microsoft pay some amount of the difference. VeriSign presumably gives some discount because there's a lot of orders. Right, so the question there is basically, uh, does this change the install experience and is there any requirement to keep Windows around? If you're using a distribution that is signed by Microsoft, then there is no difference in the install experience. The firmware will boot your operating system and the install, pro uh, the install process will be identical. There'll be a little couple of things that's done differently behind the scenes, but that will not be user visible. You're not required to have Windows. You can obliterate Windows off the machine entirely. Matthew is such a good speaker. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a deadpan delivery for his jokes. If folks didn't follow the the, if you followed along with the slides, uh, which we'll put in the show notes, uh, uh, you'll see that that one slide, unless he fixed it, has two HTTPs on it. That was the back and forth there. About yeah, I, I was listening to it without uh, actually listening to it with Bradley, but without slides, and I was like, what, what, what? So, uh, so I, I think, uh, folks, um, so, so folks may have noticed if you did listen to 2Delta that something I said in 2Delta was actually a little bit off, a little bit incorrect. And it's actually good news, I think. So one of the things that Matthew pointed out is that the only reason you have to follow these guidelines about restrictions on ARM, i.e. that ARM must be locked down, which I said on 2Delta, is if you want the Windows logo on your ARM product. That really surprised me, and but it was good news. Yeah, it was interesting hearing that discussion about the Windows logo um, and Matthew characterizing it as sort of saying that consumers aren't interested in seeing the Windows logo on their um, on their devices. Oh, did, did he say that? I thought he was saying that hardware manufacturers didn't didn't. He ultimately he was saying that, but he said basically that they don't care because. Consumers don't really care. They assume that they will have Windows. Oh, in right, he did say that. But I don't think that that's necessarily true from a trademark perspective. You don't um, think so? Well, you don't think well it's just a matter of perspective. It may not be the primary motivator for these companies to include the logos, but I do, I, I actually, I mean, as much as I don't, you know, as much as I wish that it didn't matter to consumers that they see the Windows logo, I, I think it does. Do you think they look for it, like in a look for the union label sort of way? I mean, do they look? Do, yeah, I do. Because you don't think, I think they assume? Like, I think I actually kind I of agree with Matthew. People are so used to seeing it um, that when like they see missing. it, it's like a reassuring, you know, I know what I'm getting kind of thing. So you think if it were missing on a particular piece of hardware, but they bought that hardware and it had Windows on it, they would somehow notice? Well, no, I mean, I, I'm or not, went to the store and saw the demo. They and might ask. You know, like, this does run Windows, right? Yeah, that's true. Because it doesn't look like a Mac. Yeah, savvy consumer, <laughs> a, sa a generally savvy, con like my parents who are very savvy consumers, but my mom my mom doesn't know a lot about computers. My dad's a programmer, so that's why I'm picking my mom. If I'm not being sexist. Um, uh, I have to do the same in my examples, yeah. too, because my dad is <laughs> a programmer. An engineer, yeah. So, um, I, so I, I think that she's a very savvy consumer, so she would ask that question. Yeah, like you said. Right. Uh, I, I sure think it does matter to people, especially since they... But if she got the answer yes, she, she'd say, oh, okay, and that's Yeah, fine. no, no, that's right. But Microsoft has been so aggressive about using their logos, like on their phones and on their blah, 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 everything. Mm -hmm. All of the hardware, you know, those stickers became so ubiquitous that... I, I don't know. I just, I, I was just surprised to hear him say that in that way. I, I kind of agree with him about that because I think the pricing issue is the main issue. That when you're talking about pennies and you need that copy of Windows to be cheap and you, and, and, and so Microsoft wants that logo on there is almost uh, probably more than the manufacturer does. I think that's his point. Oh yeah. No, no, no. And I don't so, and so they, they're that. willing to give those discounts, uh, for, for OEM versions of Windows, 
which is what leads the logo to be there, which is why right, manufacturers right. would be pressured for, to put it for on. For the very reasons that we were talking about before. But the reason, the reason I feel so much better after hearing his talk and, and realizing that the ARM restrictions are, I, cause for somehow I got it in my head that the UEI, UEFI specification for secure boot, or as I, as, as FSF and I like to call it, restricted boot, required that to, to, to have an ARM product at all that supported the standard, it had to be restricted boot. I, I misunderstood that. It's actually just if you want the Windows logo on ARM, which is, the reason it's such good news is that who wants Windows on ARM? I, very, very few people are buying Windows phones. They're, 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 and because in the server market, as Matthew said, there's really no plans for the Microsoft logo in the server market or anything like that. So it's actually really good news. That it's really just a Windows logo problem, which means in some sense x86 is the biggest problem because we're talking about desktops and laptops as being the big issue, not phones. I don't disagree with that, but I do think that some people um, do want Windows on their various devices. I'd yeah, I've met a few people like that, but I think most people are really deciding between an Android device and and a. I think that's true. And an iPhone. Yeah. That's really what no, they're I deciding think between. True. And and the nice thing about the if if it's Android, the, I mean Matthew makes the great point that uh, so many phones are locked down already in various ways, including Android phones, which is very disturbing. But it's not like the it's and and, and the, the danger of, of restricted boot here is that it'll make it easier for those who do ARM manufacture uh, Android devices that will be easier for them to lock it down with with secure with restricted boot as well. So that's the real danger on ARM. It's not like it's mandated. But it will be common, I think. People will use, or the manufacturers will use restricted boot as a mechanism for lockdown on ARM telephones. Right. But it won't be something that's mandated. So there will be the ability for to basically do what we're doing in the x86 market, which is saying you don't want a restricted boot device that doesn't have your own keys uh, and so forth. Now, I can imagine ARM manufacturers doing their normal thing of lockdown to lock down updating the keys because as matthew pointed out owner override really works here you can put your own keys on pretty much anything particularly in x86 space but i would guess that to put your own keys on an arm device at least a, a, a consumer device like a phone it's going to be very very difficult because they'll use other mechanisms not uefi based mechanisms but they're the same mechanisms they use today to make it difficult to to root and get right. control of a phone so rooting a phone will basically mean can you get to the what, what is the dx or the no not, not the dx the, the one list that's the list of keys that can put new keys on if you can get to that, you can jailbreak a phone. And if you can't, you can, if you right. can't get to that, that'll be where the jailbreak moment is. Which, in a, in a sense, it actually focuses jailbreak efforts. That's the upside. Is that the, the one thing you you know you need for jailbreaking is that. So. Oh, that's interesting. So it actually, that, that that might help. I don't know, hmm. but maybe we'll see. Um, because once you can update those keys, I'm sure you can do anything you want. Because um, they're going to have a lot of various lockdown other the right. a whole myriad of lockdown mechanisms for that. So. Right. Matthew's comment about those uh, Microsoft tablets really cracked me up. Well, yeah. Actually, I didn't know about that. Well, but I, I mean, I think it's great that Matthew says, well, what did you expect to happen? I, I mean, this is exactly what Restricted Boot gives you. It gives you a device that someday someone can say, oh, we're not updating this anymore and you can't update right, it. Right, right. And that's what, what you need. Of course, you might be able to port an Android-based system to that tablet. In which case you could, you should be able to do the owner of right thing, clear out the keys, put your own keys on, put your own Android bill, put your own Sienna Jamon on and, and, and sign it or something like that. Right. And that's been the classic sort of messaging for free software argument for all this time. That's sort of the, the argument that, that users are, you know, we, we constantly are sort of talking about what arguments about software freedom make sense for non-developers. That's one of the, that's what this is one of the classic sort of arguments that we try to use. I think it's maybe hard to understand for non-developers anyway, but sort of saying that, you know, the devices you get from these companies could be rendered useless is, is one of those really powerful arguments. Um, yeah, I think so. And I think sort of hit home with the iPhone bricking incidents that were happening. I hope so. I, I think they made it a little less well, uh, it was, necessary to buy a new iPhone, which right. is what they were doing early on. Right. So, uh, so uh, uh, another thing that he mentioned uh, was just basically Fedora's general plans, which we talked about in detail mm -hmm. on Two Delta. We don't have to necessarily go into them here, but I, I think it's really good that he did say that Fedora folks at Red Hat asked FSF to get clarification, and their system using the shim bootloader uh, that they've written will work and will be compliant with GPLv3 on Grub, and they're still able to use Grub and so forth. So you were saying that, um, as I was asking, who is using EFI Linux? Because he, Matt, he mentioned that 
a mm-hmm. couple of times. Yeah, well, that's the that's the bootloader for folks who, who who might be trying to get this all straight in their head from just having listened to Matthew's talks. The EFI right. Linux bootloader is the really, really simple bootloader that doesn't have all those features like booting off encrypted LVM partitions that Grub has that folks started to write that's designed to just boot off of VFI and to be basically a replacement for not just the shim bootloader plus Grub, but basically, but basically the whole thing, the whole chain up to Linux. I have to say that one of the really cool things about what Red Hat is doing is that is that is basically sending Matthew off to talk about this issue. Yeah, um, and he's such an expert and you know and so knowledgeable that giving talks like this is a real, I, I think, a real public service. Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, the downside in this and and Karen, you had actually brought this up about about what the BSDs were doing, and I and I think when yeah. we look at Theo de Rot's statements against well, both of them, it's funny because I always think of the BSD. I'm secure by <laughs> default. <laughs> Yeah, and that's <laughs> and that's why Theo de Rot, not surprisingly, is is basically saying both. Uh, I think his statement was both Red Hat and Canonical Limited are trying to be Microsoft mm. and try to lock people down. Um, I, I I mean I I'm, I think I understand why he's making those comments because I'm certainly concerned about the idea that the folks while it's great that that folks will be able to update their system and the one question I was going to ask Matthew that I didn't since I was recording the podcast anyway, I didn't want to go in and be asking questions too but eventually I want to talk to him about this about what their plan is for explaining to users who do want to override and install mm-hmm. their own keys and rebuild their own Fedora they, they have committed and I, I assume they'll do it to write up very very detailed instructions for people so they can add their own keys and, and all that sort cool. of thing uh, because I think that that information is going to be hard to get come by for met, my, a lot of hardware yeah. Because it's not, the hardware's not going to I hope they do it. that. Um, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, and, and, and when he was talking about all this stuff about, about, about the, it doesn't, the UFS standard doesn't even specify the format of a key. Right. So for every given hardware, you're going to have to figure it out. And if you want to do owner override, it's going to be very, very logistically difficult. It's not going to be forbidden, but logistically difficult, which is almost like forbidden sometimes. And so that's really disturbing. The other kind of disturbing thing he said was trying to work out what to do with third party mod- modules. That that kind of bothered me. Yeah, I just felt like the reason that they need that is basically because of proprietary kernel modules. Right. It's ironic, isn't it? Is it ironic? Well, I, I don't know. You always say I say things ironic that aren't, but I I think it's because what they're trying to do is sign all the modules and be able to sign the modules such and lock down Linux effectively, so you can't get out of a secure boot environment. Right. And they're actually trying to make that true for all of Fedora, but. Uh, but the, their issue is the proprietary modules that people write for Linux, like NVIDIA, they can't actually figure out because you're getting modules from third parties to, to figure out how to lock, do the lockdown and sign the modules and all that. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Those I think mod- it's kind of sad, but I don't know. If those modules were upstream, they could do it. But on the other hand, it's thwarting their efforts of, I, I, I'm of two minds about it because I would like to have, a secured boot environment that I set up myself. I mean, that's true secured boot. If I could put right, only right, my right. keys, only the kernel I built and know that if I'm running a kernel, I mean, I do all sorts of extra security things myself that are, that are uh, completely susceptible to advanced types of attack uh, because I don't have a secured boot mm-hmm. environment. So I would like to do it, which means I would have to sign my own modules and so forth and not be able to load modules I hadn't signed and, and signed on a machine that I knew was not compromised, right. et cetera. So, uh, so I'd like to be able to do that. Of course, I don't run any proprietary modules, so I don't have to worry about when I go to sign my own modules. But it's interesting that they have this logistical problem of trying to sign everybody's modules, including third-party ones, because the, thir- the only reason there are third-party ones is because they're proprietary. Right. Uh, I wonder if there are any. Yeah, you're probably right. There probably aren't any. Well, I guess there are pretty modules that are problematic that are. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are. I mean, I'm kind of black and whiting it when it's not because there are third party modules that are available under GPL that just haven't been upstreamed because the vendor didn't really spend the time upstreaming them. So that does oh, exist. Okay. So that does exist, but I think sense. it's relatively uncommon and the code's out there. So it could be upstreamed by, by, by Red Hat if it wanted to, for example, or anybody who wanted right, right, to right. be enterprising about upstreaming it. So, um, anything else of, of interest you wanted to talk about with regard to? I don't think this so. Talk? I think that covers everything that we wanted to get to. Yeah, and I'll link in the show notes to various things about the about the statement Theo de Rot made, and we'll have a link to the slides, of course, and a link to the articles uh, about uh, EFI Linux that Karen and I found. Cool.
Careers in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Freedom Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Freedom Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Freedom Freedom website, faith.us. That's f a i f.us. Thank you.